I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we continue The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. In November, The Spin explores, interrogates, reframes, and reimagines consent with women and men from the continent. We hear from millennials, sex educators, school principals, young ministers, the formerly incarcerated, and activists. We talk the personal, the political, the societal, and the cultural. We ask, what did we learn about consent? What do we need to unlearn? How do we create a consent-positive environment? In November, the Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Essence. Check out Essence every Thursday and they will post each show plus a written piece on the Convo contributors. Consent, sharing, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that. Coming up... Contributors this week are Monica Dennis and Liz S. Alexander. Monica Dennis leads a consulting practice that provides training, coaching, strategic planning, and leadership development to organizations and communities committed to racial justice and equity. Monica is an organizer with Black Lives Matter New York City, an international organizing network focused on combating anti-blackness in all of its forms. Monica is co-founder of the Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute, an organization committed to developing and supporting the leadership of black girls and their families. And she's currently a thought leader and faculty member with the Novo Foundation's Move to End Violence Initiative and Core Alliance Speaking Race to Power and Generative Fellowships. Liz S. Alexander is the founder of She Dreams of Freedom, a project that raises awareness about the plight of girls in the juvenile justice system. In 2015, Liz was recognized as a 40 under 40 young woman professional leader by Demoiselles de Femmes, a trailblazing organization serving girls on the south side of Chicago. And most recently, Liz was named as a, quote, woman of influence, unquote, by the YWCA of New York City. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hey, thank you for having us. Consent. You are two black women from two different generations. Let's start with your personal journeys in consent. How did you learn about it? Who taught you? How did their teaching shape your relationship to your body, sex, power, men and women? Did the actual word ever come up for you? And if so, in what context? How did family and especially culture influence that teaching for you? How did society shape your ideas of what it meant to be a woman and notions of consent? And what kind of sex education was there at school? How did religion shape your learning about consent and sex? Let's talk consent and your personal journeys in understanding. Monica Dennis, let me start with you. As I was reflecting on my own journey as a black woman, but I don't ever remember the word consent being used until I was a, a young adult. 
so I think about the ways in which consent was communicated to me. I knew I, I knew what consent was by the things that I did not want to see happen, right? And so in my personal family, I saw the way in w- ways in which women could be in charge of finances, could be in charge of child rearing and all of these important acts. But when it came to the autonomy and her own needs to consent was not, uh, was not even part of the discussion. So I think about consent in the ways in which, not only in terms of having agency over my own body, but the ways in which the black women in my life were communicating to me where I did and did not have autonomy. And so also as I think about uh, the sex education that I did not receive, I received books, but they always talked about sex in an anatomical way, as you mentioned. And then also, it wasn't until I got into predominantly white educational spaces where there was more information being offered to me. But again, the word consent. And then just to give a little bit of context, my family has been living in the United States for more than 250 years and has this conversation around consent and black bodies. I think about it in a very, very broad perspective that Black people, black women in particular, black girls have not had consent over our own bodies and over our own thoughts and wills and the entire history and legacy that my people have been on in the U.S. territory. And so when I think about it, consent is not an individual experience for me. It is what does it mean for my family? What does it mean for the women and girls in my community? What does it mean for me historically? And also what does it mean for me in this moment? And then the last thing I'll say as it relates to religion, so I have messages being communicated to me about the role of women, black women in particular, and black communities, and that coupled with a deeply entrenched Christian ideology in which I was raised in, where there was never a need to have a conversation about consent because you shouldn't be having sex anyway. You should not be aware of your body. You should not be aware of the agency and autonomy that a woman is deserves and is entitled to and and is part of our human journey should have, right? And so why would consent be part of the conversation if sex should never be anything that is on your mind that you're thinking about, that you should never be in touch with your body um, and that whatever pleasure you are to experience comes because of your proximity to to a man that you might be married to. So I find it multi-layered and very deeply entrenched in history, in culture, in religion, and for me, a context that is very much influenced by the United States. Liz Alexander? I'll talk about my journey to consent. It, it really began with my mother, who was my model, right? And so, no, I did not formally use the term consent, but through her own lived experience, whether it was leaving my father, fleeing from a domestic violence relationship, or just in her own journey as a survivor of child sexual abuse, I grew up knowing that my no had power. And my mother just embodied that in her ways of being. And so I can recall very young, maybe around five, again, though I didn't use the term consent, I knew that my body was my own. I knew that no one had a right to access my body without my permission. I knew that I had a voice. And as I got older, of course, that then spread into other areas when we talk about consent. My mother was an incredible example for me in that way. When I think of, Monica, you said something really interesting about religion, because I also come from a very Christian fundamental context, and consent around body was not even thought of, right? Because to your point, that didn't even exist. Though we know that sex was happening. And so I found in my context that because of 
the culture as it was, it really created a lot of shame, silence, and secrecy when we talked about sexual abuse in the church, which is absolutely rampant. And I'll talk more about that in another context. But yeah, so those are the things that that come up for me regarding uh, consent. I knew very young, did not necessarily use the terminology, but knew my no had power because my mother instilled that in me just from her own personal journey. And not only did she instill it, but she also modeled that through her own lifestyle. I wonder, can you talk a bit about, Monica, I'm listening to you connect your personal agency with that of the experience of your family and then the experience of black girls and women historically. And I wonder about how the history shapes what consent means to you and how it changed the better you understood the history. Because one of the things you said was that knowing that black girls and women, I mean, if, if, if your body has been for sale, then the idea of consent is alien in terms of your arrival on the shores of the United States. It's an alien concept. So then as the history becomes better understood, how does then that shape and change your relationship to consent and what it means to you because of the context of history? I think about the ways I've watched the women in my family and I myself have thought out and chosen consent as a, a way of life, even in the face of not having access. So, right, I don't have access to my body. My body is not mine. And so what are the ways in which we might seek consent? So I think about pursuit of education as one of those ways to, you know, what are the ways in which I actually have to, black women are, are seeking to move out of their current condition that allows them mobility and with mobility and however way that we're defining it affords us more agency. So I think about education and economics, Right. So when my family members and people in my community are communicating to me, education is a way out. They're not only saying education will get you a better job, but that access to economics, the thinking is whether it's true or not, right, because we know it to be different. What they're also communicating to me, the women, is is that the more control of my economic situation that I have, the more choices I can make about the spaces I'm in and how I'm going to be, you know, how uh, consent shows up in my life. Also in that was being communicated to me the choice around career, and I feel like this is all connected, right? So you're talking about I'm literally part of the first generation in my family that actually gets to choose the profession that we want as opposed to being assigned a profession that has to do with land management, farming, and all of these kinds of things, literally the first generation in my family. And so consent is very deeply tied to options around career, options around education, options around economics, options around whether or not I choose to have children, whether or not I choose to, how I choose to organize my family, it's all of that. And yet, even in trying to offer me these things, I still don't think my family members were prepared to, to, they understood, but also knew that that was not a guarantee that I could be in spaces where I could make more money, have more access, and still be subjected to not having control over my own body, mind, and will. And so I do think it's, we need to spend time unpacking that. It is not only historical, it is contemporary. All of the spaces I think about in which black women's autonomy is always being questioned, and then the ways in which we have to spend emotional labor asserting ourselves for our own dignity and sake of our own humanity. I was six years old when I was, uh, had, was victimized by sexual assault, right, at the hands of a sexual predator. And so that message is also being communicated to me about who I could turn to, the shame that is connected to it, and the messages about 
what does it mean to be a proper and polite and well and respectable black girl has been communicated to me in very, very subtle and pronounced ways that as I look at the course of my life and the different times in which I have experienced sexual violence, all of those messages are at play. So as a fully grown woman at this stage in my life, consent is extremely important and I connect that to my right to pleasure, my right to choice, my right to who I even want to uh, live and partner with, my right to choose whether or not I will or will not have children. So as I have gotten more politicized, as my reality has changed in terms of the current context in which I'm living, I see that my definition is broadened and also the definition of the elder women in my community has broadened. We're in more conversation about what consent means. Liz, I was thinking about you saying that you knew at five that your no had power. And part of what we're exploring with the consent convo is that so much of the language and the teaching around consent is the idea that you have the right to say no, that no means no, that it is an absolute no, and that needs to be respected. Part of what we're doing with the consent convo is actually looking at the spaces when you say yes and what informs that yes? What has informed that yes as a result of your relationship to your body, the way you thought of yourself as a woman? When you have said yes, what informed that yes? And how did the yes relate to a no that is a kind of an emotional inheritance from your mother who's been a survivor of sexual assault? Because of my mother's experience, she has created spaces within my familial context. And and just in growing up, too, I mean, a lot of things that I was involved in always affirmed and reaffirmed who I was as a girl, as a black girl, and as a woman, right? So I've constantly been nurtured in these spaces and surrounded by these kinds of people who would affirm me. And so that yes came from a space of what do I need? What must I do to be whole? What are my needs? And then, of course, it varied given the context. So when we talk about my own personal life, when I'm thinking or about engaging in relationship in any form, is this person healthy for me? Does this person meet my mm-hmm. needs? Can this be a relationship that's mutual and reciprocal based on reciprocity? Does this person values align with mine, right? So when we talk about job, is this a place that I want to be? Is this a healthy culture or is it toxic? Does this job meet my minimal salary requirement, right? Does it give me flexibility? Does it allow me space to do the work that's genuinely my heart's desire, right? And so it goes on and on depending on the context. So I'm clear. Yes, in addition to my mother, but again, my incredible system of support, including my therapist, and I am intentional about highlighting her, right? Because just the space that we're in in general, we're talking about consent. I have found that it is so important that therapy in a space where you can grow and heal and really address a bunch of your stuff is so vital when we talk Mm -hmm. about developing your voice around consent. I want to ask you the same question, Monica. You spoke specifically about developing a relationship with consent. And there were spaces where there was a broadening and expanding of that in terms of options, career, education, etc. But then there were spaces in terms of your body where there was not autonomy, there was not agency. So that same question, the idea of When you do say yes, when you have said yes, I'm talking about in relationship, when it comes to how you or why you engage in sex, what has your yes been informed by? One of the reasons I ask that is I know just for me 
personally, somebody who's kind of raised in different diaspora spaces and educated in school where there was a very, very deep politics of shame that was really serious for me. So my yes was informed primarily by fear and very rarely by desire. And I was blessed to have partners who were understanding and really helped me kind of stumble along and figure it out. But it took some figuring out and moving through a space where I was able to then decide what the yes meant for my health, for my pleasure was a journey. And it took some serious time. So for you, when you think about both the lessons that you've learned personally and what family has taught you, what has informed your yes? It's so interesting because as I reflect back on my 17, 18-year-old self when I was exploring what it meant to be a sexual being and doing that in ways, I, my first relationship with that was consensual. And then also I was being questioned around how I engaged sexually and what my thoughts were by the women in my community. And to them, I was wholly unrecognizable because for me, as I was going through my journey of womanhood, I was motivated and moved by pleasure and connection and intimacy. Intimacy. And there was, I guess, an inner knowing, even with all of the external messaging, there was some inner knowing that was being cultivated in me that at a young age, in my late teens, early 20s, uh, the draw for me was pleasure. The draw for me was desire, connection, intimacy, and recreation and fun around it, right? And so my yes has been informed by what has opened up for me when I'm in relationships, whether they're intimate partner relationships or relationships where the needs of my body are actually being met. And then that opens up access to other forms of yeses, right? Um, there's that actual reconnection that I get to have with my body because part of what has happened to my body has been a dissociation because of sexual trauma that when I'm in relationships and I choose partners with whom I can actually have intimacy, pleasure, fun, and all kinds of things in between, that that actually gives me access to making choices about my career because of the connection to my body that I'm more tapped in and I know and I can use my body as a source of information for what I want. And that absolutely has been a journey that has gotten richer and sweeter and more communal as I've gotten older. And when I say communal, I mean I am now in more conversations about what that means for me. Whereas when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I wasn't talking to anybody about the pleasure I was experiencing and what that opened up for me or even had a place to ask my questions, uh, have questions answered. Now I'm in spaces with primarily where I'm talking to black folks and black women about those things. And so also as I was running programs, I used to um, spend a lot of time organizing black girls and I've had those conversations with them a lot earlier about their yes. So I find that having a connection to my body has helped to heal trauma, has helped to open up other spaces where I feel more power, uh, a sense of my own power, my sense of my own agency that definitely shows up in the other aspects of my life. And I've done also a lot of work around shame in therapy as well. I would say this has been extremely healing for me. What informs my guess is, again, centering what my needs are, knowing that I have a power being affirmed in who I am as a black woman, rooted in the way that I was raised because my mother was a survivor, and then further supported and nurtured by my community. So I also wanted to circle back to my yes, right, and how it relates to a no. So I'm clear, right? I am a millennial woman, and, and I will have to say that millennials, we're a different breed, right? And so I'll just use my profession, for example, supporting girls in the juvenile justice system, right? 
most of the time I'm coming into spaces, I'm at the table where I'm, you know, the only, um, if I'm not the only black woman, I'm one of two, right? And so for these folk, just given their, their, their reactions, right, like, um, and you can just tell um, in, in some spaces the level of, of uncomfortability to be at a table where, you know, a black woman like myself is vocal, right, where I um, am, am a, clear, right, where I can effectively communicate, where I'm really aware of the issue. And, 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 and in some spaces that it requires me to push back, right, um, to some of the things that are said, are discussed, uh, et cetera. And, and it's interesting, you know, how my, how my, um, how their no, how my yes, you know, uh, how they react to my yes. Right. And so I have, have just some of the comments that I've gotten. And I just really associate that with what kind of what Monica talked about earlier when we talk looking at the, the larger social historical context and just the, the larger context in, in general especially in terms of intersectionality and how black women and girls are, posi- mm-hmm. are positioned. Right. We, are often silenced, right? We are often uh, a no, right? We are often marginalized, oppressed, rendered invisible. And so, you know, to have black women and, and girls saying yes in the face of that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I'm interested just to see what that would even look like going further with the new, you know, with this most recent event with President-elect. So I also see my yes, and, and just the yes in general of, of black women and girls, as a revolutionary act. Mm-hmm. especially given given these times. You're reflecting back to me, like the places where I've had my yes affirmed has been when I'm being mirrored back by black women and girls, right? So something about even just being in space, whether it's space to grieve, to mourn, to heal, to celebrate, to talk, you know, just to, to talk and gather, just the reflection and the deep listening that happens in that exchange actually affirms my yes. That definitely uh, translates into my relationships. And then the other piece for me around my journey is that I've come to a, a place of understanding and knowing and appreciating that I am responsible for my own pleasure, right? And so also the, the yes that I want to experience is not only dependent upon the men I'm in, and, and having sexual relationships with that I'm engaging with, right? That there's also the pleasure that I get to bring to myself and that I'm responsible for that when I'm with myself and I'm responsible with that when I'm in relationship. So thank you for what you're saying because I see I'm reminded of the many ways in which my yes is reflected back to me. And what you point out, Monica, is something I've been extremely lucky to experience in that when I am in the company of black girls in particular, that I also model it. And that's just really intergenerational dialogue, right? Mentoring. I have been fortunate to be to have a ton of, of big sisters, black sisters, black women, right, mama figures, aunties, who walk in their own power, right, and and then, too, who, who are open to exchange with me, teaching me from their own experiences and, and sharing their wisdom, which then, again, right, affirms the yes in me. So, yes, through this interchanging, this, this dialogue, this ability to be vulnerable and authentic and raw, mm-hmm. and also just through their own actions and behaviors, modeling, so then I can replicate that. And then as this is happening, again, it simultaneously affirms my yes and gives me a permission to be a yes in any space, unapologetically. How does the legacy of what your mother walked through, how does that shape your yes when it comes to dealing with sexual relationships, Liz? I knew early on, even though I, I didn't have the term, right, just like consent, but I also didn't know about violation. Like, like the, I, I didn't hear the term violation early, but I knew that having somebody 
touch me without my permission was extremely problematic. And so I said this to say, how did, how did it reflect or affect my relationships? Given the context of my mother's survivor narrative, it happened with her siblings, right? And so though I can, again, remember as early as eight, her recalling her experiences to me, right? But me not really fully understanding, right? Cause her telling me she was violated, but really, again, me not grasping it. But I say that to say that when I did come to maybe like around 12 or something, it started to take on new meaning, right? And so I developed a lot of distrust with men, for sure. But interestingly enough, I always trusted my brothers because they were always a safe space for me. Maybe in my late teens, early 20s, I started to look at my uncles, her perpetrators differently. I started to then look at them from a space of distrust. And so I I can just honestly say, has it affected my relationships? Yes, largely in the area of trust. I'm Monica Dennis. You're listening to the Consent Combo. Consent is swag, consent is smart, and smart is sexy. I'm Liz Alexander, and you're listening to the Consent Convo. Consent is swag, consent is smart, and smart is sexy. Stolen breath, 
today makes me and maybe makes you want to do this. one of November's The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Essence. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Monica Dennis and Liz Alexander. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. Time for part two of the Consent Convo on The Spin. Let's talk about the politics of consent. Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. Listen. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, We can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an astounding upset victory. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States, defeating Hillary Clinton in a campaign unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. Unlike anything we have seen in our lifetime. Them have them new plan I implement And it's their new world order government We're in such a predicament They're gonna treat us all like shit again, yeah You know to this there is no mystery Still only those who have passed to see they will see It's only injustice and hypocrisy They're setting up for you and me So why should we trust 
in politicians. A man who, on video, openly bragged about sexually predatory behavior, one who rubbished and insulted women, and who has no idea what consent is at 59 nor indeed at 71. That man is now the leader of the free world. Now, Monica and Liz, you are two black women who both lead organizations focusing on the development of black girls and women. Monica, you with Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute and Liz with She Dreams of Freedom. So Liz, your organization deals specifically with girls of color caught in the juvenile justice system. And Monica, yours is about cultivating leadership skills among young girls and women and their families of color. So let's talk about consent and leadership within a political and organizational context and against a backdrop of a Donald Trump presidency. Liz Alexander, let me start with you, your thoughts. When you said that, the first question that came up for me was free for who? Right. It's a free world for who? Because right now, what, there are about 60,000 children in general in the juvenile justice system. And of that 60,000, girls are the fastest population being funneled into the system. And I will say overwhelmingly, girls are criminalized for their victimization. So that means girls are in jail for nonviolent offenses. Right. And so that looks like there's a dispute at home. Mom calls the cops. Most of the time, the girl is taken out the home and put into the justice system. Or it looks like a girl who is a survivor or victim of child sexual trafficking, and instead of her John being picked up and put in jail, she is. So there are tons of examples of girls who are currently incarcerated because we use prison and jails to really deal with pressing social issues. And I'll also add that many of these girls have horrific histories of trauma. And I'll never forget how I got into this work is doing juvenile justice work in Chicago, Illinois, as an advocate. And a part of my role was going into prisons. And I went into a girls' facility, Warrenville in Illinois, the only state prison for girls. So at this point, girls have gone before the judge, and they have now been sentenced. And I was there, and I saw a girl as young as 13 years old in prison. So the question is, what could this child have done to end up in prison serving a sentence. And if you look further into her story, this girl grew up in a, in a very neglectful home. Parents were absent, was sexually assaulted by a family member, went to school, got in a lot of trouble at school, a lot of fighting, all a result of her trauma. Then that led into her being dispelled, her ending up on the street. And, and this particular child come to find out that she actually was picked up for stealing. So she had multiple instances of stealing. And if we look at her, like several girls who are incarcerated for stealing, these girls girls engage in survival strategies and survival behavior. So this particular girl, she's been caught stealing feminine products, clothes, things to, to keep her alive. So when we talk about consent in the age of this presidency, and when I think of girls of color who are overrepresented and disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system, I'm thinking, what must we do to support them to get them whole? So again, I lead with the question, this is a free world for who? Monica Dennis? Sexual violation and sexual terror is a part of empire building, right? And so when I think about that the 45th president of the United States is Donald Trump, I can only go back to the beginning of the founding of this country and the several hundred years before that, where sexual violence, hostility, and terrorism was foundational to the building of this nation. And so the devastation feel that that many years after this that we could be in this place also takes me back to, oh, this is actually how empires are secured through sexual violence, 
and terror. So then I think about what this, this moment means for the re-entrenchment. So when you think about the things that Donald Trump is talking about, what is the impact of Donald Trump's presidency on immigrant women, right? As he's already declared that detention and deportation is going to increase. But what we don't always talk about is what is happening to women who are in detention centers and women who are being deported, like the level of sexual violence and terror that they're experiencing. What's going to happen to domestic workers and women of color in corporate spaces? What's going to happen to this new law and order resurgence that he's proposing, the policy that he's talking about, double downing on law and order. And when we know that there is a serious pipeline around the criminalization of black women, of women of color, of Native women, that is directly connected to our sexuality, and then the extra violation that we receive at the hands of people who are in law enforcement. And so it's almost as if the role model for how to continue to perpetrate sexual violence is going to be living in the White House, as just as these kinds of people have been living in the White House you know, that far back as Thomas Jefferson and beyond. So this just deeply full circle moment that is very, I think, visible, visceral, just tapping to my own trauma. I've been on the phone all day and, you know, over the last 24 hours with people, just trying to wrestle with what this means for us and what this means for our community care, what this means for our emotional and spiritual health, and then what this means for us politically, because those things are not separated from one another. So I expect to see tremendous organizing in the streets, tremendous political organizing underground that is bringing communities together to actually talk about these points and those intersections also that Liz, that you're talking about. Like, this is just part of the continuum. Just the reality that Donald Trump will be the 45th president. I'm trying to think about, like, what is it that I'm going to need to be grounded emotionally, spiritually, and psychically to continue to do the organizing and activism work that I'm doing, that this is a devastating blow to the spirit of people who are doing this work. So while cognitively I know that there are mechanical steps that I can do, yes, we can organize and protest and strategize and do all of that, the psychic and emotional and spiritual impact and devastation this is having on folks, on me, is something I need to be in community with so that I'm not trying to figure it out by myself. If you look at the definition of the word consent, if you break it down as two words, con and scent, it means feel together, quite literally. And I think about the presidency of Donald Trump and what white America feels together as a result of what we're witnessing, which is the rise and rise of a global white nationalism. We've seen it in the UK with the Brexit vote, which was about leaving the European Union and the shock that it actually was a vote to leave the European Union. We've seen the rise and rise of white nationalism across Europe and the criminalizing of women in hijabs or burqas being formally arrested for donning clothing that was part of a religious dress. So I think about that word consent in terms of how it breaks down. Those two words feel together. And the reality of the most toxic element of masculinity, which is about the feeling of insecurity in the face of progress. And when we racialize that, insecurity by white men in the face of progress of people of color and women. And that there is no formula when it comes to this kind of most toxic elements of masculinity and patriarchy that can align or interconnect progress and white maleness in particular ways. And so in breaking down the word consent to its origins and putting that against the backdrop of a Donald Trump presidency, I think about 
the feeling together of a united space to free style abuse in a way that is modeled by the person that you voted for. So there is a particular and specific set of behaviors that you now have access to and they have been now politically sanctioned as a result of what it means for this man to be the leader of the quote-unquote free world. And so freedom as it's attached to you, the freedom to be within your most bigoted self, but not in a, a quiet, repressed way, which is how you see the idea of progress. The idea that you would be sanctioned for sexual assault for you means a lack of freedom. The right to simply speak, insult, degrade, denigrate women and to not just do so, but to face no consequences as a result of what you've done. And for that to represent a certain kind of masculinity. So that feeling together, you now feel tied to your white brethren, both nationally in the United States and internationally across Europe to engage in the kind of behavior that is literally detrimental to every other person except yourselves. And that for me is how I think about consent as it applies politically in this moment where Donald Trump's election has left me almost unable to articulate a coherent sentence. So then I wonder for you both, as we're getting ready to close, what does organizing look like when you're centralizing girls and women of color within a political context where gender is a weapon of war in all kinds of ways, but gender is a particular battleground in this space. What does that look like for you? Starting with you, Liz, closing with you, Monica. What organizing would look like, in, uh, particularly in the context of gender for me, is when working with girls, is, is really to continue to affirm them, right? Because given all of this and everything you spoke to, Esther, my first thought is, how are our girls internalizing this? Right? How are they making meaning? And especially for the girls who are already survivors. What does it mean to have this predator, right? Um, this self confessed, this exposed predator take the highest seat, right? And so what does that mean for for the predators in their own lives? And so I say like so organizing just going forward looks like continuing the work, right, of building up our girls. Continue and that looks like continuing the work of centering their healing, giving them space to speak, of empowering their voices. Of, of of even being still, too, right? Um, and, and when I say still, I mean still enough to feel whatever it is, right? To cry, to foster vulnerability, right? And then also teaching around political strength, right? Uh, what does it mean to be strategic while we are in this space? And that also includes what does it mean to be strategic around creating safe and healing spaces for girls. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about meeting baby Shug Holy out in the woods, you know, kind of thing. But what does that look like in New York City? What does that look like in Chicago? So again, organizing looks like really building up our girls, centering healing, centering empowering their voices, centering equipping them with political strategies that are strategic, as well as equipping and supporting and allowing them to define what our safe spaces with our healing spaces so we can go rest and then be ready for battle. 
When I think about organizing, what does it mean? What does organizing look like in this context? Um, and I'm going to center and, and hold the focus on black women and girls because that's who I am and that's with whom I organize. So the organizing is intergenerational, meaning that it would be multi-generational of black women and girls coming together to share experience, to engage, to educate, to enlighten. Uh, organizing is healing. How do we heal from the historical and contemporary impact of internalized trauma, internalized sexism and Organizing looks like coming together to have a process that helps us to identify our superpowers and the places where we have power that can be collectivized and also that we can tap into as our own individual selves. Or for me, organizing is about tapping into ancient wisdom because there is knowledge, resource, leadership, and wisdom that is older than us that can actually help us to answer some of these questions while we're also trying to hold a futuristic vision of what we want. But organizing is politicizing folks, getting clear about gender, dismantling some of these myths about what it means to be respectable, what black women and girls can and can't do, and literally who is a woman, who is a girl, like expanding within black communities and breaking down some of the trauma we've inflicted upon one another around gender, around who we see as women, what our relations are to the trans women and girls in our communities. And then I think all of that and, and so much more creates a space for us to come together to vision for a future that we have yet to even think about, like the vision for a future that we have yet to experience and see, and then also to celebrate too. So I don't want to leave that out to that uh, the other part of the organizing there has to be a celebratory radical commitment to black joy and pleasure so that's what we will be up to as we do our work in our communities from this point on as i think about defining the word consent within the context of a donald trump presidency and the idea that consent means feel together i think about it in terms of a global black reality and what are we going to feel together as a result of this kind of rise and rise of global white nationalism, what is that going to look like for us? And I think this is where our emotionality politics becomes really important because certainly we know that racism is a public health issue. It is a particular cancer. The nature of Trump's presidency and watching white nationalists feel a certain freedom and a certain justification for the most cancerous of views now being given the air and the freedom to articulate them in particular ways. I ask myself, what does that mean for our emotionality as a global black people? And what kinds of process and practice are we going to create in order to ensure we not just are well, but stay well in a space of what will be continuous and multiple stresses. I think what Donald Trump reveals is both a very profound racism and an equally profound sexism. And the combination of the two and the ways that they interconnect as it relates to the idea of consent, the idea of feeling together should not be underestimated. And so for me, it's saying as global black people, I'm sitting here talking to you from Accra, Ghana, where there has been actually a very strange alignment between some Ghanaian middle-class men and blue collar white working class men who supported Trump because of what it means for their masculinity. So then as women and as women of color, what are we going to feel together and create in terms of a process as a result of that feeling to not just walk us through this space, but to do the ongoing work of actually 
healing, dealing with our emotionality in the context of this iteration of a Black Liberation Project. And it's powerful work, and I'm grateful for you both and the work that you do that allows us to move forward in all kinds of different ways. What a conversation. What is going on?
and the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters No more secret space launches Government departments started it in the projects Material objects, thousands up in the closets Could have been invested in the future for my comrades Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat Many never come back, pretty be running with gas Rather get shot in they back than fire back Retire that, corporations hiring blacks Denying the fact, exploiting us all over the map That's why I write the I write in my raps, it's documented, I meant it Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it It's more than just believing it I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion This ain't ready for revolution The average black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved and the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state Well, that's your hour. Thank you to Liz, Alexander, and Monica Dennis. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is The Consent Combo, a global public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Essence. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin One. And check out Essence, The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. See you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flashy. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't lassie. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity in the sea. Hop no for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, a ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better than get it. Tell you This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium 
NPR Distribution and the Public Radio Satellite System.